Do you like movies? Do you like TV? Do you like discussing the temporal effects of non-linear time travel and its implication on the plot of the movie Looper? Uh, okay. Do you enjoy the latest in pop culture news? Do you enjoy superheroes? Do you enjoy discussing the relative merits of superpowers and their effects on human physiology? Anyways, if you enjoy these things, even a small amount, you'll love the Rusted Robot Podcast. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube, and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. TheRustedRobot.Podbean.com We'll see how it works out. Let me make sure that I'm close enough to the mic to be... <laughs> okay, there we are. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the unfathomable task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally unfathomable, sometimes unfathomable, it's hard to make that work, three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. Today we have not one but two novice fans, the most senior of those being one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Good evening. And we welcome back our new novice fan who has not seen the original series and has not read any of the books up to this point, and that is the bombastic Rory Yopst. Hey. How's it going, Tony? And I read one of the books. You did in well, uh, December. The yeah. previous one, yes, yeah. exactly. So there is yeah. one. Yeah, everyone takes that personally. I remember you doing that too. It's like I, I've read books. Yeah. <laughs> books. It's like yeah. nobody ever read these. Yeah. I was previously yeah. illiterate. Tell Tony yes, taught the, me how to read. Exactly. It's like that moment in Seinfeld where where he's like, where Jerry goes, I read, and Elaine goes, books. Jerry goes, oh, <laughs> big deal. Exactly. <laughs> Before we get to talking about the book, please remember our new Patreon page available at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, because we know you all have them, as a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. As usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. Thank you, gentlemen. This time around, we're discussing one of the lost Troughton stories that really no one is hoping will rise out of the sea in all its glory anytime soon. And that is Nigel Robinson's novelization of Jeffrey Orme's story, The Underwater Menace. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, The Underwater Menace, adapted by Nigel Robinson from the Jeffrey Ohm script that aired from 1467 to 2767, published by Virgin Books in July 1988. As of this recording in May of 2018, this title is currently out of print, 137 pages. And you may have noticed, no, there is no audiobook of this one, for reasons which will become clear. Alright, The Underwater Menace is one of those stories that had such a troubled production history that no one involved in it was or is happy with it. Patrick Troughton hated the way the fish people were made up, 
And in fact, if you look at the cover, you can see exactly how they're made up. So that pretty accurate that, makeup? That okay. is a photorealistic painting oh. by Alistair Pearson right. of a publicity shot given to him. It uh, actually has a certain haunting quality that I liked. But, uh, a little be- bit. But... Because they look soulless and terrifying, so they were completely opposite in the story of what I expected. Exactly. Yeah, I expected them to be way more humanoid in yeah. the story, actually. And this, this one, they actually do look like they could be like sea monsters. True. Almost like they're, and because it's the underwater menace, I, you almost feel like they're the threat <laughs> based on, on the cover, and that could not be further from what actually yeah. the actual story is. The yeah. threat is to the BBC uh, costume department's <laughs> reputation <laughs> instead. And the problem is, <clears throat> even with that, not all of them get those costumes. In fact, I'll show you the some clip get later. Kind of a scale yeah. bikini or something? No, some of them just get. You'll see. It's ridiculous. Well, I think some of them. They talked so much like sort of average everyday workday Brits in the '60s. I had a hard time even picturing them as fish. Oh at all. well, they're not the fish people. If you're yeah, thinking yeah. about Sean and Jack, Jack yeah. they're not they're fish just, people. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're just Miners. they're just like slaves. Mm. But I know I, I I agree. I mean that's true. They're not the fish people. But I also just I kind of got that vibe from when anybody talked. Really, yeah, I, yeah. there's not a huge difference in sort of like you know in sort of tone and the word choice and diction between right, right. any of the characters even though right. the author goes out of his way to be very precise about some of the accents like one is specifically yes. sloan square which is yeah. you know yes. down to the neighborhood but then as you said the actual the actual syntax was pretty unvaried among and, many of the characters and i actually think i agree with that Alison. one of the my favorite lines from the book is uh, his voice had a pronounced East European accent to it, together with a slight American twang. Yes, which I actually thought was which a nice description. Which it does, as you'll hear. <laughs> yeah. All right. A uh, few more things that they did not like about it. Uh, producer Inish Lloyd, the producer of the show, said that the story, quote, did look like something from a 50s American B-movie. And that is saying something bad about American B-movies. Probably for the same reasons, in fact. It was done in a rush, and it was done with the next-to-no budget the Doctor Who has always had to contend with. In this case, though, the production problems almost well sunk the story. <laughs> uh, you know, so I try. I've heard of it. You also said Fathom earlier, didn't you? Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. And now you're getting it. Mm-hmm. Yes, they started with the idea... We've had a long day here. Something fishy is going on. Yeah, <laughs> anyway... They started with this as the idea for the story they were going to do in the slot in the season, but they were concerned it would cost them a mint, so they dropped it off the schedule. Then William Ems was originally supposed to fill in the gap of the story called The Imps, but he got sick, and so they suddenly had to do this one again. Then they added Fraser Hines to the cast as Jamie, necessitating his inclusion in the story. And as a result, they ended up filming the episodes for this one only a week before each one aired. (laughs) <laughs> Which is not a good place for an episodic sci-fi drama to Unless be. Unless you're South Park. <laughs> yes, and they could get away with it, but this show can't. And for the longest time, all we had was episode three, and it was all most of us wanted. In fact, I'll show you and you'll see why. Then it was discovered that the more violent scenes were clipped and stored by Australian Broadcasting Corporation. So we got those In their back. dirty vault. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Sex and violence stuff. and profanity. And yeah, that they don't allow their own people to see. And then just a little while ago... You know on Friday night that they'd open up the vault and oh, pop I'm some sure. popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> now, we've already pissed off the Australians <laughs> once on this show. Don't oh, do yeah. And then just a little while ago, episode two emerged from whatever depths it had been trolling in all these years. That was enough for the BBC to essentially 
rush a restoration of the episodes along with the poor reconstructions of episodes one and four onto DVD. And, of course, episode three would be the one in which the fish people have their peculiar underwater ballet as they go on strike. And I, uh, <laughs> I will show you, it has to be seen to be believed. I had no idea there was a ballet. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's a yes. quite picture, actually. Oh, God, you will soon. And, yes, we will see Atlantis again. Doctor Who goes to Atlantis not once but twice. <laughs> and it's different every time. It's some unfinished business. But... <sighs> Something like that. What we know about the writer, Jeffrey Orm, could frankly fit on a postage stamp. Despite his having a filmography that stretched back to the 1930s and included at least three old Mother Riley films which were popular in the 1940s. Think Tyler Perry's Medea, but white and popular. <laughs> and 17 films of it. There yeah. have got to be close to 17 Medeas by now. It certainly feels that None of us will ever come close to a 150th of Tyler Perry's yeah. fortune from Medea. So uh, I, I don't true. feel that arrogant about it. That's true. <laughs> Maybe if we just stuck our name in front of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Tony Witt's Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> Tyler Perry's Doctor <laughs> exactly. Who. Yes, exactly. So. Now, the writer Jeffrey Orm himself didn't write much of anything that American audiences might recognize. Except for this and an episode of The Avengers and not the... You know, the comic books show, Is obviously. Yeah. Definitely Thing an individual we don't know much about and not the pseudonym of maybe a better-known writer? No. No, it's act- that's actually him. He died in 1978 at the age of 73, long before there came a need for all of the older stories to be retold in mm-hmm. prose format. And just ten years later, that situation was quite different. The target range was humming along despite the departure of Nigel Robinson as range editor. He handed over the reins to Joe Thurm, but there was just one problem. The TV series itself was beginning to run out of material because they were doing fewer stories per season at this point, and they were running out of material from the past to adapt. To combat this, Thurm came up with the idea of novelizing Missing Adventures, which is a phrase that gives all of us fans a bit of a tingle, Mm -hmm. because by the 90s they were doing Missing missing Adventures. We read one, in fact, The Plotters. I I feel like at this point I have read almost possibly more Missing Episode novelizations than Extend available. You may have, have, actually. Um, This was also the year that they stopped producing a hardback edition of each novelization. In fact, this is the first time I've mentioned this because some of our listeners have noted that we only talk about the paperback ones. The hardback ones came out like six months earlier than the paperback, and as a result, they were scarce as hen's teeth, mm-hmm. and they still are hard to get. Are they mostly? Were they mostly for libraries? Yeah, okay. and that's why. Are, is there expensive. anything different? Do they have like a different forward or a different introduction? No. Yeah. No, in fact, I'll but, show you some of the hardbacks I've got. Yeah. No, they're just slightly bigger, mm-hmm. and um, in fact, I did not know this myself until just a few months ago. They had a slipcover. Mm-hmm. Most of them don't have the slipcover anymore. A more durable spine, I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but that's why we give the publication dates for the pop paperback editions, because they didn't really sell all that well. That dearth of material is also why 1988 is the year in which Nigel Robinson writes not one, not two, but three novelizations from the past, two of which we've already read and appreciated. Um, Allison, I think you've read one of them, The Time Meddler. Yes, I you, love The Time Meddler. You love The Time Meddler. And we read before Edge of Destruction, and I think that was uh, Jenny and Dalton, and they um, they didn't like that one as much. I did. When I do interview him next week, that is coming, by the way, 
I intend to ask whether he took these books on purposefully or whether it was just not a matter of not being able to get the original author to do them. Mm. In any case, doing a novelization of such a story as this can be a thankless job, and I guess we'll see how thankless here in a minute. That being said, cover art by new artist Alistair Pearson makes the most of the original source material they gave him, though there's nothing that can be done about that shit logo hanging over all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's read the blurb and find out what this is all about, shall we? Rory, will you do us the honor? Of course. When the TARDIS lands on a deserted volcanic island, the Doctor and his companions find themselves kidnapped by primitive sea people. Taken into the bowels of the Earth, they discover they are in the lost kingdom of Atlantis. Offered as sacrifices to the fish goddess Amdu, the Doctor and his companions are rescued from the jaws of death by the famous scientist Zaroff. But they are still not safe, nor are the people of Atlantis. For Zaroff has a plan, a plan that will make him the greatest scientist of all time. He will raise Atlantis above the waves, even if it means destroying the world. Dot dot dot. Ellipse. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. You want to know more? Read all 130 pages. <laughs> why? Why are the rest of us even here if there's someone with delivery that sonorous who could be mm. doing all of it? Because mm. he has a busy schedule and we don't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're the leaving. Squeezing you in. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. But to make it up to you, Allison, what were your first impressions yeah. of this one? Well, I could have actually gotten bluffed my way through this episode very well if I had just read the blurb on the back of the book. Uh, I, I felt annoyed on behalf of the writer that this is a little too thorough of an explanation at the end. Yeah. Because, once again, I, I don't try to foresee the plot twists reading through a book like this. I just let them pleasantly unfold in front of me. And right. this one, there was nothing earth-shattering, but there were things I didn't see coming, so I wasn't trying to see them coming. I was actually annoyed that I knew every major development before I read it. Oh, yes. And should have just stopped reading after the first paragraph of the <laughs> Okay. How about you? Your first impression? Well, a lot of it was the same first impressions I had about the arc, which I, uh, which I was the only one I read for this podcast back in December, is that, you know, I think there's something interesting about the way the story sort of unfolds mostly in dialogue and not in a lot of heavy description. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's been adapted from, you know, a serialized television show, which is largely told in dialogue. I think there's something interesting about the style of this, the sort of inconsistencies of voices that Nigel Robinson uses, I think there's there's sometimes I feel like moments where the language is very formalized and very British sounding, you know. Uh, and I think there's like great efforts to actually, you know, make, you know, use similes and figurative language, you know. There's like, I think there's moments in this in this book where he's really trying to be a good writer. You know? Right. And, but then I think that's sort of weirdly counteracted by language it's also very casual and very informal i mean i think i had written down some some of those lines like you know we have this one line where it's like after all this like very fluffy language it says but we're nearly there complained jamie realizing once again that he would never really understand girls you know <laughs> you know yeah, and suddenly this like suddenly comes that, this like yes. sort of blog about like this guy and his sex life you know yeah <laughs> Well, and the, the thing that he says he'll never understand about girls is, he says something effective, we've been walking a really long time, let's stop and have a breather, shall we? <laughs> yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Are your ovaries making you crazy again? <laughs> <laughs> well, he is from 1745. Yeah, exactly. Oh, but we haven't obviously not gotten, <laughs> gotten nearly to the worst of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mm. Interesting, uh, just... 
slight thing in terms of initial impressions from the literal prologue here. Oh, yes. Um, Let's start there, definitely. Well, uh, this is actually <coughs> purely unintentional jokes from the... Uh, I, I presume the OCR, because these look like scans of the book, then there are obviously OCR errors in there, unless right, they were yeah. the original. So, uh, the Louis X slash V chair, <laughs> where the, uh, the, the I in the Roman numeral was... Uh, Interpreted as a slash, oh, yeah. but well, apparently hands, right? we missed an incredibly erotic episode, a very special episode, a ways back. <laughs> so there's this kind of peekaboo description of Polly that's eh, not that bad, it's just kind of slightly annoying. Um, and then, oh, what? What's the exact phrase? Polly smiled, remembering her lust experience at the TARDIS. Her lust experience. Her lust experience, and lust is mysteriously capitalized. Oh, that's my quite true, she said in her slow and square accent. I'm like, what very special episode did I miss? The lust experience in the TARDIS. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it was just in the prologue. There were no more entertaining How OCR strange. errors like that's that. That's pretty amazing. Because yeah. the last, when we discussed the last book, at the very end, she's guiding him into the TARDIS, and she says, It's okay, it's really pleasant. It's bigger on the inside, and all of us took it as, oh, good God. So, <laughs> you're saying so that the OCR made a Freudian slip or just enjoyed the innuendo. I mean, that's just something that I've, that I've noticed from, you know, I'm very much a novice in the fact that I read the last book, and I've seen mm-hmm. a couple episodes of, like, the Eccleston mm. right, right, right. Yeah, seasons and everything. But there does seem to be this sort of weird tension in between like the females on the show and the men on the show it's like but not yeah. now yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not at this point in the show maybe not maybe not at this point in the show but i always felt like there's always like there are these guys are kind of flustered and there's this woman with them and they kind of don't know exactly what to say or exactly yeah. how to act and they get all flustered like i can't don't really know how to talk to girls and whatnot yeah but that's that's weirdly that's not what's meant to be happening there i'm also, not saying it is i'm just saying yeah. that's sort of the impression that i get yeah, yeah. and I, also the fact that if th- there's a problem in that prologue, there's one oddity, and that has to do with timing. If Polly led Jamie into the TARDIS at the end of the Highlanders, did she simply run off to her room to change into something more comfortable as fast as her little legs could yeah. carry? And then just sort of leave him to wander and gape unattended? I think that's exactly what happened. Sort of a bad host. Well, I mean, if, if it's a time-traveling device, couldn't she have, like, you know, <laughs> gone to a time where she could... Yeah, yeah. Put him on pause. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah but he seems the time confused. Where she had time What's to get going dressed on? And, you know, where am I? Yeah. Right, so I have this principle. Well, actually, I have several complaints. <laughs> but, okay. But the early one on was, up to this point, Ben is not a jackass. And he's just a no. jerk throughout in a way that's very different from the way we've seen him characterized in his previous appearances. And he's not. A, it's not even funny, jerk. No. It's not... It's not like a one-off where you write a character completely differently because you have some comedic things that you want to do and you're going to apply them to yeah. this character. It's just, it's non-gratuitous. <laughs> I was completely ungratified by it. He was written more like Stephen, who often is sort of trying to be funny, but there's kind of a meanness behind mm-hmm. it. And I would have no problems with it for Stephen, but for this character, it left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, and I'm wondering how much of that is from Orm's script trying maybe to put a little bit of tension between he and Jamie since Jamie's the new boy in the TARDIS and Ben's still not sure if Polly likes him or not. But right. his yeah. his general rudeness is directed toward and contempt is directed towards Polly, of not course, towards well, of course Jamie. It would be. 
And similarly... Because he's got to throw the snowballs in the right direction. I didn't make a list here of, like, all the, the adjectives and verbs applied to Polly here. But things like, you know, scream, squeal was, a, I think, a couple of, right. of things in yeah. there. It's not... It's not that you can't ever have a character like that, mm-hmm. but Polly is not written like that. No, not Polly, to this she cries several times when she's in situations that are almost identical to situations she's been in before, mm-hmm. where she seems mildly exasperated. There, there are scenes we've seen before where she is described as being very afraid in a way that makes you see things from her perspective. Yes. Like she's bolted to a chair, she has this weird sensation, it's like an electric chair or something, where. The fear puts the reader in her position, right? Or the description. Whereas here, she's just she's not just an object of mild contempt to Ben, but to the reader as well in a way that we haven't yeah. seen and that seemed really gross and uncomfortable. Yeah, she even gets slapped by Jamie at one point. Oh God, we're yeah. going there, are we? Yeah. Oh God, might screenshots. As well, because okay. that was something <laughs> that was something I need to ask Robinson about because I'm almost certain it didn't happen on screen. Mm-hmm. Okay, what the hell is he doing? Um, yeah. I took this somewhat personally because I actually really did remember like the time meddler a lot. Oh, is that the one with the game gang, gang rape in it? Yeah. Oh, where, yeah. where once again I was like, what the hell are you doing in the middle of this story, yeah. handling it in this way? I'm like, well, yeah, it could be handling it in this way and not pulling it off, or trying to do this much worse thing, or trying for this much better thing. Mm-hmm. But all right. with another half hour, the three companions were almost at the summit of the volcano. When they reached a large out, open outcrop of rock, Polly, who had been lagging behind, sat down determinedly on a large stone and massaged her aching feet. Can we stop for a breather, she pleaded. I'm sorry, I'm reading completely the wrong quote, Jamie said. (laughs) What in the world is wrong with you, you daffy dame or something? I don't know. I wasn't able to improvise. All right. All right. Of course we are, Jamie reassured her, reassured her formally, uh, firmly. Uh, one more minute and we'll be out of this, you'll see. Polly shook her head in despair. The dark oppressiveness of the tunnels into which they had been climbing was taking its toll on her. And another and another and another. Don't, Jamie, don't you see? We'll, we're buried alive. She broke down in an uncontrollable fit of sobs. Out of desperation, Jamie slapped the hysterical female across the, sh- the face. Mm, that shut her up. That shut her up. And oh, God. It's not that you can't have a scene with a slap in it. Uh, this is not exactly what we call defensive self or a third party, but... That shut her up. And I out of desperation, hysterical female, that shut her up. Like, that's just kind of irrefutably straight-up misogynistic in mm. terms of having all three. And this isn't so. by no means defending it, but I think you said Thurum, you said, was like a writer of like films in the 1930s. Yeah, or And I really do think that that was more of the sort of like male-female dynamic in films that were coming out at that time. If it's in the original. Not at all defending I'm just saying that this I think this guy was a product of that time more than say some yeah, but then Robinson could have taken it out this is yes. not the 1930s yeah yeah and well, she's been treated much better yeah, worse exactly. to follow up now come on Polly he said gently there's still a chance get up and follow me like what the fuck are you trying to establish an abusive relationship where <laughs> yeah. he hits her and then is kind and the well, you're Scottish well, so, sorry JG I'm making a joke it's now. not 
<clears throat> that you can't have a scene with a slap in it. No. It's the way it's described from the author's perspective sure. to be mm. our perspective. It's not he did this and he really ought not to have, or he did it and they're doing a slapstick joke, or he did it and he's the villain, mm. or he did it, but you know he had a really good reason. She was trying to do this or that or kill this other person, but just uncontrollable fit of sobs, desperation. Oh, you know he had to do it. Hysterical female that shut her up. Yeah. Like and the fact that he sort of feels like entitled to like be in that position where that he feels like that's the but, way to yeah. well, handle situations. But we're shown that he's right. Mm. It's not yeah, characterization yeah. of him where he's from this other century, this is how he treats people, does mm. it not a function of this timeline. It's like, he was desperate, he had to do it, it worked, then he was gentle. Desperate he had to do it. Yeah. Everything is approval of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I definitely see that. Hmm. And I'm really wondering now whether that's in the episode. Hello, fellow time travelers. Tony Whit here. I just wanted to interject for a moment because it's been bothering me since the recording of this podcast whether or not Polly actually does get slapped by Jamie. Or, to be more frank about it, whether Jamie slaps Polly. And since episode four does not exist, it's hard to tell whether he does or not. If you listen to the audio it's fairly clear that something happens there. She's kind of going a bit hysterical, and then suddenly she says, ow, right around the same time that he also raises his voice, but then offers to help her in a very sympathetic tone. Oh, it's no use, Jamie. I'll never make it. Of course you can. When we slope wood away. Oh, and another, and another, and another. It's no use. I won't, Jamie. Come on. No. None of the transcripts that I can find actually seem to have any mention of a slap. There's obviously not a script book for, well, you can tell why. And neither of the two reconstructions that I've been able to find on YouTube, including the loose cannon reconstruction, shows a slap happening. So it's an open question, and it's one that I will ask Nigel Robinson next week when I interview him. However, in the course of all this, I did find something that we didn't mention while recording this podcast, and that is, this is the story that caused producer Inish Lloyd to decide that Polly wasn't working out as a character. And since she wasn't going to work too terribly well without Ben, the two of them should probably leave at some point soon. Which is unfortunate, because it does kind of echo what Allison has to say in this episode about Ben turning a bit nasty, and how Polly is suddenly very much in damsel in distress, uh, which is something she wasn't before. Anyway, let's get back to the discussion. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to go back and look. But once again, it's not the event, it's... The, the characterization Oh, no, of no, the no, event. I completely agree. Because we've seen before some pretty egregious stuff oh, from yeah. earlier episodes that have been reworked in interesting ways yes. to either... Such as the aforementioned gang rape. Well, or right. even the, uh, the the Yellow Peril villain in... Um, oh, Celestial Toymaker. Right, Celestial Toymaker, yeah. which originally was overt yellow face and then is, is, yeah. is caged as a person who's dressing up as a Mandarin. 
in the book. Oh, yes. So they don't actually change the costuming. They change it from a sort of hideous stereotype to someone who is assumed that as mm. a costume of power. Yes. It's not changing the events, but it's framing them in a different way. Oh, interesting bit of side trivia, not to completely derail this discussion. But Michael Guff, who played... Alfred. Alfred, uh-huh, yeah. Alfred from the Batman movies. Yeah was at the time married to the actress Attica Wells, who played Polly. Ah. Oh, wow. There was something like a 30-year age difference between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just died like, recently. Yeah. He was like 95 Exactly. Or yeah, yeah. She divorced him long ago. Yeah. He was in which Batman movie? He was Alfred in the original trilogy. Oh. Yeah. yeah he actually even like carried over into the Schumacher movies as well. Gotcha. Yeah, he was in all those first four ones. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think these are interesting ideas that we're talking about. I did think that's interesting you brought up the sort of yellow face idea from the other book. Because I did feel like when I was reading this that these worlds, even though they're going to like these different like universes and, you know, time periods mm-hmm. and they're, you know, going to like the far reaches of space and whatnot and these different, you know, worlds. There's something that, you know, that feels very like the culture is very sort of insular specifically to sort of like Britain's. Yeah. yeah. That seemed, it doesn't, it almost feels like this is like, you know, an exploration of the world, be, uh, explorations of these distant worlds from people who like probably haven't left the British Isles yes. ever, you know, exactly. to a point where like even some of the, Reference most of the references they have, the really specific references, are in reference to sort of British culture. Mm-hmm. And I've collected a couple, couple of them here. Yeah, like okay. we have like clutching a plastic bu- bucket and spade, like a little boy on his first trip to Blackpool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a story they're telling when they're you know deep underground, yeah, <laughs> exactly. deep under the water. Not well, not yet. Yeah. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's right. They have, not at that point. That's yeah. the very beginning of the. But the doctor wants to go out to the beach like a boy on yeah, his trip to yeah. Blackpool. Yeah, and then uh, and then we have a a flatfish from Galway would have had would have more guts than you lot. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I have that scene. Yeah, that's the scene I'm going to be showing you. In yeah, time. I mean, there is something that seems very naive to sort of like how the world works, sort of beyond. <laughs> no, true. Uh, yeah. Sort of beyond their own sort of insular culture that exists in like England at the time. I think well, that's really interesting. It's sort of an interesting perspective. I'm not even saying yeah. it's a bad or wrong perspective. It's well, just an interesting. I'll agree yeah. that even Atlantis is uh, Atlantis by way of Charing Cross Road. Yeah. yeah, it's got that kind of feel to it. I mean, they even like justify why they're speaking like British English the entire time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you have to give them credit for that yeah. because yeah. that isn't in the original. Oh yeah, and it's Robinson, and I will give Robinson credit as you. There are some additions to this book that make sense of some of the worst plot holes, and that is one of them. I mean, it's something where everyone's always curious about, like, why we go to these distant worlds and they speak English perfectly. Yes. And actually, an interesting segue, I don't know why this movie of all movies have stayed with me, but while we're talking about Atlantis, there was a movie that came out in 2001 called Atlantis, The Lost Empire, which was an animated film. I think it was, like, one of the last of sort of the hand-drawn, you know, wide release. What's his name? Michael J. Fox, Don Bluth, yeah. Um, but I do remember they have a scene like that where they also justify why everyone is able to speak mm-hmm. English. And I thought that was also an interesting touch, too, that not a lot of people oh, are. Yeah. This is linguam Romai. Parlez-vous français? Oui, monsieur. They speak my language. Pardon, mademoiselle. Voulez-vous... I like her. Hmm. About time someone hit him. I'm just sorry it wasn't me. 
How do they know all these languages? Their language must be based on a root dialect. It's just like the Tower of Babel. Well, maybe English is in there somewhere. We are explorers from the surface world. We come in peace. Welcome to the city of Atlantis. Uh, you could go back all the way to Douglas Adams with the Babel fit. Yeah, exactly. that's the best justification of the English. But they said something like, in Atlantis, they all speak like this sort of root language, like the Tower mm. of Babel, so they're mm. able to sort of... Right. You know, They've all read their Noam Chomsky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're 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 linguistically able to figure out any language by listening to it. Hmm. Well, that would make more sense than the TARDIS not being able to translate Atlantean for them when they finally mm. do hear it. I don't know. It's the, the weirdest thing. Mm. However, it does give us that lovely line from Ben. Well, you speak foreign, don't you? It's like, oh, God. <laughs> it really does come off a little stupider in this book mm. for some reason. Uh, what else? Well, so what you were talking about with the, the part about the doctor being, you know, really anxious to build sand castles and play with the castle and play with the shovel. The first few pages, I was trying to figure out if they were trying to do the doctor as almost senile or sort of developmentally disabled or something <laughs> in some way because he was being written as so eccentric and childlike um, that I was interested in where it was going with it, and that didn't seem to be consistent throughout the story. No. Are we... No, are we are are we are we a spoiler free show, Tony? I, no, we're not. Okay, no, okay yeah. <laughs> we can refer to uh, yeah. the entirety of time and space. Because I think just is sort of like my impression of like not to always compare it, but my last book, I had to like read the last few pages again to be exactly clear about how the conflict was sort of resolved at the end, you know, and how they kind of got to the denouement. But uh, yeah, I was like, wait, wait, how was this stopped exactly? And then you know, have the forget the name the high priestess uh high priest yeah uh come wielding the knife and everything yes yeah, and it is a bit of a deus ex machina and it's just yeah, it's a it's a complete deus ex machina it's just so it's one of those things i'm almost dying to see how it works i guess Kemp, this has to be the sloppiest most you know <laughs> inept knife knife fight i would have I'm ever almost seen certain yeah it's, a, it's an addition because yeah. i don't remember it being in the original because it's about him like yeah having a knife you know telling these long you know mm-hmm. giving these long monologues about the justification for it and yeah. then like missing him several times yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah are up several times he's like splitting you know, his attention you know, between knife fight and and then he got him in the arm, and, had, and like you know, and he's like, and then you feel like, oh, he's he's finally done it. But then Zarov goes and still starts the machine, and then like, yeah. wait, what was the exact point of this then? Just, I'm not yeah. sure. And then and then the doctor, I feel like kind of like what you were saying, Allison. So like, the doctor just came and just started like mashing buttons until mm-hmm. it stopped. I mean, and that's exactly what the doctor does. <laughs> yeah. We have an impression of like the beginning. Yeah. Sorry? Oh, so we have an impression at the beginning of a doctor who's maybe not quite all there. Yeah. And I thought maybe it was going to be sort of like artifact of regeneration. Maybe he hasn't quite matured in this form no, yet. That's the second doctor. No. He's trying to do more of like a holy fool sort of thing. A little bit. A little bit. Where he seems to be half out of his head and sort of head floating on a cloud much of the time, and then he pulls it out on the end? It's something like that. It's more to the degree that the second doctor wants you to think he doesn't know what he's doing, but he's watching everything and is observing everything. And yet he still doesn't always know what he's doing the whole time. I mean, at the end of Power of the Daleks, Polly, remember, she asks him, you did know what you were doing, didn't you? And... He just kind of smiles at her. Yeah, so that's the way this that's doctor right. works. And one of the best deliveries in the episode, and I noticed it was missing from the book, is that when they first go into that lab and uh, Ben says, well, hey, do you know what you're doing? And the doctor says, what a stupid question. 
Of course I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, good good turnaround. Yeah. Well, the last page of the book has a lot of that humor in it that I enjoyed. Um, but overall, a lot less humor than in the plotters. Yeah. And kind of more sort of that, like just sort of unenjoyable ugliness in ways that were disappointing, I suppose, because mm. I enjoyed the other one so much, despite its the part, despite the parts I did not, okay. <laughs> if you will. Such as. Uh, well, no. So the previous one we talked about. What, what I'm doing is anticipating a Reddit commenter who's like, "Oh, that SJW having the show says you can never have a gang rape. You can never have a man slap a woman for any reason. You could never vote Republican or something like that." Well, for one thing, we need a <laughs> much more active Reddit than we have. To get <laughs> yeah. you know, everything has to be politically correct. And what I'm talking about is my my complaint about that book was not that there was a gang rape, but the way it was. There was no commentary or follow up yeah. that contextualized or gave any. Kind Kind of author's perspective or other character's perspective other mm. than the doctor is extremely clueless about reading people yeah. in this situation in a way that he hadn't exactly been in other books or in other parts of that book. I agree. I it agree. wasn't the event, it was the way it was handled. Here it's quite similar. It's not like you can't have the 18th century guy slapping women around because that's what he's accustomed to. Right. Mm-hmm. But either showing it as just fine or actually necessary is my complaint about yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, but precisely. I have no idea whether or not this is how Jamie is going to be characterized. Has been before, no. will be in the future, but no, ma'am. with Polly and Ben, the changes are, they're not funny, they're not entertaining, they're not cons- consistent with what's come before, they're, they're inconsistent with the previous appearances in a way that's not fun or enjoyable yeah. or <clears throat> narratively I developing. I, was, I kind of so. turned off at those moments myself, you know. Yeah. Uh, I really, I actually kind of like, you know, kind of sort of power read through them until I got some moments with Zaroff and yeah. the Doctor, which weren't great either, but I think they were yeah. at least bringing up some, they were at least furthering yeah. the plot along that was yeah. at least curious about where they were going with it. And I thought it was a fun, yeah. breezy adventure plot, and I liked the pace at which yeah. it was moved along. Mm. Um, although I do wonder how vast um, the story is of Doctor Who episodes that involve a lot of tunnel chases. I think oh, I've read at least yeah. four or five books that involve extensive <laughs> <laughs> chases I'll get used the tunnels, that. I assume it's an extreme extremely affordable set to construct extremely yeah so so. much so that whenever they have a scene like that in one of these stories i have flashbacks to at least five or six other stories they're similar to it this easily could have gotten bogged down in sort of political and religious monologues in a way that did not kept it bouncing along they could have and that's another that's another plus I'll give to Robinson on this one because they don't spend a lot of time on that science versus religion mm-hmm. versus superstition dynamic. He does. And so when he brings that high priest in at the end to try to kill Zaroff, you're like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, I'm surprised no one's that hasn't happened before, that, that those tensions haven't boiled over before this point. So here's my major question about the plot. Yes. How were Only they conf- the one? <laughs> Well, once again, I wasn't trying to pick it apart. I'm, I'm, I'm not try- reading any of these books trying to rip the author a new one or something right, like yeah, that. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading them as they're intended, as, you know, yeah. fun, breezy adventures with some more thoughtful moments in them. Um, right. How are they controlling the fish people before? Um. And how would they control them now? Won't they just swim away if they threaten to kill they them? They will probably it's, just swim away. It, it, it was a an oddly non-tense part of the plot yes. that stood out to me when I wasn't looking at things like that. Which is 
not just disappointing in the book, but also disappointing in the story. That you have this bit of body horror, potential body horror, which is so which is terrifying. I yeah, yeah, just so terrifying to the audience that the Australians clipped out most of it, which is why we still have it. Um, and yet, when you do see the fish people, it's like, oh, fucking God. Did mm-hmm. they really just go to Marshall's and get <laughs> yeah. these felt patches right, to put right. around their eyes and sequins and all that? And indeed, that's and I think what that's sort of what the book has going for it. When right. you first had this this initial idea of like they're forced to be turned into fish with these sort of like artificial apparatuses. Yeah, <laughs> but what can... keeps them there? Yeah, that's kind of horrifying if you let your your imagination sort of go there. Yes. I think once they start talking, I feel a little bit yeah, yeah. less inclined to do less inclined to like have that certain picture. But I think you're all right, and I think that's where maybe where I haven't seen the episode yet mm-hmm. from what your description is. That might take me completely out of it. Yeah, it does. Whereas this sort of like you know like I thought of a recent movie. Tusk. Did anyone see that? Tusk? I did not. Yeah. Oh. It was a Kevin Smith's one of Kevin Smith's post retirement <laughs> movies oh, where, dear. Where, where it was like a, a <laughs> where someone retires and continues to produce work exactly, for years exactly. and years and for years, years and years and years, yeah. Where he, he made this film where Justin Long is this podcaster who is um uh, kidnapped by this rich megalomaniac who turns him into a human walrus, and it's and it's it's hilarious, <laughs> but it's also more literal attempts than autobiographical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it's so, but it's also like, but that was like horrifying yeah. when I saw yeah, that. that like, you know, you feel, and this guy just like is freaked out out of his mind. He'll never be a human again. Mm-hmm. He can never be done. Yeah. And the yeah. initial presentation of that yeah. in the story worked. It was the yes. it was the one scene where having Polly be terrified made yeah. perfect sense Absolutely. in context. And then weirdly later, Ben's laughing like, ha ha, you were afraid of being turned into a fish. Like, yes. no, Ben wouldn't like be the a big jerk about that. Ha ha, I'm not afraid of But... <laughs> You you've got this sort of body horror scenario and these enslaved fish people and you're interested in them and then there's really nothing there. No, their, yeah. their behavior doesn't make sense in internal logic of the story. Like they could have something that's kind of kind of bizarre behavior mm. that makes sense in this story or a recognizable behavior of people who used to be human but have been transformed. In this Here's way. my thing. It's like ah, oh, I guess I'm a fish now. Yeah, I, think I guess that's I'll right, go right. fetch food for my masters yes. who can build a nuclear reactor because there's fig- nothing else to do but and there's no way out. Can't figure out how to create an ice house with 15th century technology or yes. a refrigerator. And I, <laughs> I think there could have been, I, I agree, Allison, I think there could have been more about like why specifically being a fish like sort of meant that you were enslaved to a I thought it was going to connect to the religion. Yeah. Now you yeah. are truly one of the sacred creatures of the goddess connected to her by right, exactly. sustaining the community or something like that. But no, I guess we just bring them fish and then two hours later we bring more fish. And I even oh, thought about it something being like something being a little bit more literal, like they can't escape into like well, everyday society if they're yeah. just you know. Yeah, I don't think they can. Yeah, they they have to stay in the water or else they will die. But why do yeah. they keep why do they keep serving yeah. the Indians? I'm just wondering how Zeroff Zeroff must be this amazing scientist if he's got the power to do food completely out of plankton. 
even though he doesn't know how to preserve it, weirdly enough. <laughs> um, actually, though, I think that's, Dave Six I think that's yeah. intentional, though, yeah. that they do make a sense of it. They say that part of the reason why he keeps the Atlanteans underfoot is that he's got the fish people yeah. getting the plankton for them, and that's the most food they've had in ages. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense he wouldn't want to preserve it. He yes. wants yeah. to have to maintain the system himself. They have no food stores for that reason. But then we don't see how he's maintaining the system himself. True. True. Well, he doesn't really have to if he's just going to blow but up the world. But how does he make right. the fish people continue to conform and keep up They have no other system. place to go. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the only thing. Well, no, they can't get out. Because wherever wherever Atlantis is, the city parts of it, wherever mm. they have access to the water, appears to be to have no actual outlets. I hope for their sake that it does, but it doesn't sound like it does. <laughs> you seem yeah. genuinely concerned that somewhere out there, there's still trouble. A little bit. Yeah, yeah that they... <laughs> I just don't want a sequel to the story. <laughs> yeah. Or I think they may even be led to believe that, that like, you know, oh. as long they as they, be. you know, as, you know, the only way they can survive is if they are fish. But if they were turned back to the human, maybe they both do. Yeah, get on exactly. the dry land and, and, exactly. find, yeah, and find this ubiquitous, you know, sort of. Yeah. Which makes the scene where they appear even stupider. Because when they're sound, listening to uh, Sean's speech, they're all just, you know, lying on the on the banks of wherever the little grotto that they're in and making these really bizarre noises back at him. Mm-hmm. And that's about the extent of it. It's just, oh, God. I actually had a question for you, Tony. Not that yes. it appears too much, but, but it's not really. It's all kind of related. Okay. So there's one line that also popped out at me where it says, uh, The doctor had come up with some strange plans before. But this surely was the strangest of them all. That's not even close to being. <laughs> <laughs> and I and that was actually one of those weird lines where I'm like, is this the perspective of Ben, or is this the perspective of That's Nigel Robinson? You know? That's Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Ben hasn't been through the worst that the doctor. I didn't even find it to be all that crazy, really. Yeah. All things considered. No, yeah. it isn't. And it's yeah. not even the strangest that the Trouton doctor is ever going to do. Yeah, so I have no idea. That's just such a strange line. It, it kind of took me out. I'm just saying, like, this doesn't seem that <laughs> weird. What is it? You know? Every once in a while, he'll give in hyperbole, I've noticed. Yeah. But then all these books do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They all do it. Well, it's not in a context, though, of poor Ben. He's so naive. He has no idea what's happened before and what's coming. It's yes. just more an offbeat rather yeah. than a... Just a tad bit. Now, to get back to Zara for a second... Not only can he do the plankton thing, but he is able to train them in how to use nuclear power, electricity, penicillin, all of these various different things. And it's like, why exactly did he have to escape from other scientists on the ocean, on the surface? What exactly was going on there? Were they just so pissed off at him because he was a smartass and they wanted to beat him up in the... uh, Parking a lot after school every yeah. day, or what the hell was going on? The mad scientist, I took it as he has previously had schemes that were along the lines of, let's do this thing that will have the side effect of maybe destroying the Earth. And he was ah. perhaps ostracized. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think that might be it, because otherwise you think... Want to do escape no, ethics committees, maybe. Possibly, yeah, because you, you wonder why the doctor knows his name so readily. I was going to ask you if we were supposed to know his nope. name from other stories. Nope. Not at all. The doctor, but the doctor knows him. And the doctor knows him because, one, he was this celebrated scientist, obviously a polyglot of some sort. And two, he disappeared suddenly with a bunch of 
leather clad boy guards. Which is just bizarre. As you do, I guess, when you're a mad scientist, you have to have a lot of uh, hot toddies around. Well, yeah, henchman's thugs, right? Yeah. 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 He's, he's a Bond villain, but he's not a very good Bond villain. And I mean, that was, I think, one of my favorite observation, observations. Like, what kind of scientists are you? They have your, these thugs to, uh, to do your dirty work. Exactly. I don't like the idea of being a mad scientist with hinges. With the, yeah, I, I like it. They didn't like it. The author didn't like it either. I think that was an interesting perspective. Yeah. I mean, I like the thought of the, for myself as like a, a second career. Yeah. Or a third one, depending on how you're counting here. Yes, my next career... I'm going to have to go back to school, though, to learn evil science first. Well, I mean, I, I think it goes back to the, the whole... The, 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 the whole line from Princess Bride from Inigo Montoya. He goes, there's not a lot of money in revenge. Yeah. Well, I've got to, you know, build this up a nest egg so I can yeah. make, make payroll for my thugs and all mm-hmm. that. I was just wondering about that because as soon as <laughs> we... Because you, said... you want to hire on? No, no, no. <laughs> no, but I was just thinking that as soon as we said something about Bond villains, I had to remind myself whether or not the actor who played Zaroff actually was one. Uh. Um, I think he was in... A movie as something similar, but he wasn't Joseph Fust. I think that's the way to put it. Ah, Diamonds Are Forever. It came oh, out. wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, because this was an Austrian actor. In fact, the reason why Robinson is doing what he's doing in the, um, in the book about him having this American twang is because that actor did have something of one. Austrians, when they learn German... Oh, oh, shit. Austrians, when they learn English, tend to get this weird kind of southernism going on yeah. in there. And that kind of happened with them. Yeah, he was in Diamonds Are Forever. And one of the most confusing wow. accents I've ever heard in a TV interview was a former head of Coca-Cola, who was, I think, Irish, but had a German education. And yeah. he spent 20 years in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. Was, I, once, I once had a tryst with a... Uh, <sighs> with a nice Mexican boy. Boy, as in over 18. Yeah. Nice Mexican boy. I was judging here, Everyone yeah. does, but this nice yeah. Mexican boy who had spent five years in Louisville, Kentucky, so he had a Kentucky accent. Yeah. With it was the cutest thing. But yeah, Zaroff, oh, there was something in the original script that Zaroff left because he was saddened uh, to the point of madness by the death of a wife and daughter in a car crash. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, so they were trying to make him Captain Nemo. Yeah. But they didn't go far enough, and now he's just this. It's an interesting thing at the last page here, which I actually found much of the last page delightful, with, you know, the doctor's outrage. I just suggested control it. Of course I can control it. What, do you, you know, what I meant was, can, can you not exactly take it where you want to? If I wanted to, I could, said the doctor. And then uh, it's just that I've never wanted to. <laughs> and then a few lines later, it's all your fault, doubting my ability to steer, he said sulkily, and then cried out as the TARDIS lurched violently to one side, throwing them all in the corner of the room. Hang on, everyone, I'm afraid the TARDIS is out of control. And then wherever they were, it only wasn't ours. So I, I thought it was like a fun, funny adventure page and a good segue into the next story. But the thing that struck me is that it's the first time we've seen him in any way affected by the way other people relate to him. Previous to this in the book, he's been in kind of a bubble, like I said, in a way that I thought they were suggesting this doctor is maybe kind of a little senile. Or towards the Mm. end of the story of the the previous doctor. Power of the Daleks, yeah. Yeah, they were suggesting that he was, you know, sort of, 
feeling his mortality and not all there because he was distracted and a bit of a reverie and a bit run down. I thought they were implying this about oh, this doctor. You're thinking about you're thinking about Tenth Planet then. I, really, I'm thinking about two or three yeah. of the last books. They, it, he has just regenerated, so we've got a completely different. One thing about the, the the previous uh, doctor, sort of seeming becoming weary and run down. So when he's not always mentally present, it's 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 moving his story forward that right. he's coming to the end. And I thought that something similar was being done here with this doctor sort of in the opposite direction. He's still developing. He's not really oh. noticing people. And then at the end, it, it's kind of a different thing that he is annoyed, annoyed with, with someone for not having confidence yes. in him. I don't know if it's right. kind of inconsistent within the story or they're moving him forward to now he's starting to sort of it's break out of introspection of his new body and his new personality and starting to notice other people around him and yeah. not necessarily like them all that much. Yeah, it's the Trouton character so. shifting. That's exactly what's happening because this could be the last time we see him play dress up. Thank God, um, because that was something they were going to do every single episode. They were going to have him play some wacky new character, and Trout was like, "Yeah, no, let's yeah. not." He tried that for a while in America's Test Kitchen. Christopher yeah. Kimball would dress up as different vegetables yeah. and sometimes uh, shellfish. No. Yeah, <laughs> nobody exactly. liked it. Trout has range, but not. Was he the traditional sort of scarf and uh, yeah. tweed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not, not even that much, really. But he, um, you can see it in the scene where he dresses up as the Atlantean priest, and then he asks Ramo, "How do I look?" And Ramo doesn't even know how to take that. It's like, "You look like an Atlantean priest. How else would you?" Look? Yeah. He's like, "Never mind, never mind." And then even Polly gives him grief about his second disguise and says, "What? You couldn't come up with something better than that?" So I think that finally broke him out of it into a doctor who's very frenetic and does not seem to know what he's doing, except he's hyper aware of what's going on around him and doesn't seem to know what he's doing when he's trying to fix things, but seems to always have a plan. Mm -hmm. Whether that plan's actually on paper or not, that's that's the difference. Yeah, and I think that's what Robinson's trying to do. That being said, some of the the best parts of this book to me are what Robinson actually adds. He has yeah. to add a lot because there's not. I think you already said it, Allison. This this story is paper thin. Yeah, but <laughs> it, I didn't mean it. that as a criticism at no. all. I thought you know it bounced <clears throat> but along. Even, like for a do, even for a Doctor Who story, it's yeah. paper thin. I, I was just annoyed that the entire thing was described in the three sentence blurb at the beginning, right. and yeah, seemingly all you need to know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's it. Four episodes of that, and like I said, there's, there's, and there's just really not a very clear climax, which no, no. is kind of frustrating. Yeah, really. just a little bit. to the point where I was just like, it's just a lot of running around and figuring things out. I'm like, okay, at what point are we going to have this sort of like, right. you know, sort of standoff that's going to be this ultimate payoff? In that way, it's ahead. a typical Doctor Who story. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it really just at the end, and then they unplug the machine, and then somebody punches exactly. somebody else out. And it reminded exactly. me of, I mean, like literally, what went through my head was, I think, it was the second Naked Gun movie. Like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, where like they have this bomb that's about to blow up oh, the entire Yankees. Yes. And like, and the way that they thwart the situation <laughs> is that Leslie Nielsen 
trips over the plug and unplugs yeah. it, yeah. and, and he's this big hero for that. But that's it's, a comedy. That's, that's a comedy. <laughs> yes. That's a parody yeah. of like an attitude sort of like happening. But this yeah. is what yeah. they're so seriously doing. That's something they could have yeah. done on Doctor Who. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. That's they're really seriously cool. doing. It's yeah. a recurring genre of fiction, especially in serialized genre of fiction, uh, narrative, a recurring disappointment where you build up an extremely difficult to beat villain you've shown different ways that one would try to defeat them and it hasn't worked. And now you're interested in how the heroes are going to solve the problem and then something completely innate yeah. happens and sort yeah. of blows all of that interest and tension that's And once again, and like, and, so. the, and Ando doesn't do it. You know, no. yeah, Ando is like, you know, here's a person that's got like a new conscience and, the, you know, has this clear head or... Mm. Are you uh, talking about the, the, the fish god... Um, uh, I'm sorry, the god? No, the priest, sorry, not, 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 oh, not Ram I'm sorry. Ramo, Ramo. Yeah, sorry, Ramo, yeah, Ramo. sorry, I'm getting the names. And, and uh, yeah, oh, yeah. wait, no, I'm thinking about No, that. I'm thinking the, the priest. The, oh, the high priest. The high yeah, priest. The, the one who's uh, apparently a flaming, flaming gay man on uh, mm -hmm. the televised version. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm having, Lolam. Oh, yeah. that's right. Another thing yeah, so, where yeah. I was kind of mildly annoyed, like there's a lot of loving detail in how fat and repulsive it's like, like so we get it, he's heavy. He's heavy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not the problem. Is that he's evil, not that yeah. he's heavy. <laughs> yeah. Though getting back to what Robinson has given us, imagine trying to watch the story and not knowing why Ara suddenly is helping them. I mean, not knowing mm. that her... he put in that she was the daughter yeah, of previous. All of that's mother. new. All of yeah. that's new. We're not knowing why Sean and Jock are so willing to help, and you find out, oh, it's because they were captured. And... It's also a recurring yeah. trope of the genre, though, that very pretty girls are either inexplicably virtuous or inexplicably evil relative to everything else that's going on. Right. Yeah. You have this all the time in Star Trek original series, yeah, where the beautiful woman inexplicably helps Kirk just because she hates to see him suffering, something True. like that. Even the ones who right. aren't in love with him just see what's going on, feel badly, and try That's to save it. the day, and it's considered something inherent. Or that, or they are just gratuitously evil without a lot to get out of it. And in the televised version, there's a whole lot of people saying, well, we all hate Zaroff. We mm. all do. Mm -hmm. Of course we'll help you. That's like, that only goes so far. You have to have reasons yeah. why people... Well, and then, him. why didn't you do anything about him before, if you yes. hate him right. so much? Because, and that part is explained, that Zaroff yeah. is providing them with power, which they haven't had before. Yeah. They don't know how to fix fuses, so they were dependent yeah. on him for that. And I thought that worked nicely as yeah. a narrative device. And that's something that is not explored at all. It's just kind of like he's beneath the surface and is a Bond villain and not a particularly good one. <laughs> but, yeah, let's I thought this see. was a nice line. The doctor shook his head, saddened by the surgeon's blind faith in Zaroff. What a fantastic dream, the doctor said as he moved backwards towards a workbench loaded with scientific apparatus to control the world from a test tube. Yes, and then he uses a test tube to almost knock him out. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very funny. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what gets me. Ah, oh, This is where I could just go back in time and strangle the script editors and say, uh, Jerry Davis specifically, and say, you, sir... <laughs> in your own script yeah. in three weeks' time. Very formal murder yeah. you're planning. Yeah, exactly. You, sir. Well, I respected, even though he was homophobic as hell, or maybe that was just Kit Pedler. But the, you, sir, are going to say that the doctor studied medicine with Lister in 1888 mm -hmm. in the very next story, and yet you can't figure out that Zeroff 
is making up the fact that he's having a heart attack. <laughs> Honestly, of all of all the stupid plot related contrivances. I thought it could work or it did work with I may have been reading in something that wasn't there, but like I said, I read in the sort of development that he's finding his feet in the new incarnation and maybe learning he forgot that he studied blister well that he's kind of coming in and out of being disoriented a lot of the time yeah and maybe i'm being too generous i'm reading more than there but just in his new physical body he's maybe maybe he has different kinds of memories and skill sets that are kind of blinking on as they become relevant to that could be a situation And, and later authors have done something with that in fact in the eighth doctor books a lot is made up of the fact that the Seventh Doctor is a master tactician and, you know, per- perfect at chess, for instance, knows several moves ahead of the time. And then the Eighth Doctor, the first time we see him try to play chess with somebody, he says, now what does the little horsey thing do again? <laughs> we realize that their skill sets don't carry over. So well, I, mean, I think that's, that's you know just beyond Doctor Who. I think there are so many television shows that have inconsistencies like that, and that's just sort of happens when you have sort of like what I like to call like a sort of a collective narrative between several different writers. You know, it's things just sort of get lost. Well, and especially when you're recasting the show every yeah. few seasons. One actually interesting thing um, mm. from an interview with the guy who's Netflix Daredevil. Oh, he yeah. was talking yeah. about um, uh, no, the guy who plays oh, Daredevil yeah, in Netflix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he was talking about in the first or second season a scene where he's supposed to run into a room and find the person he expected to see is not there. And he said, he said on the set, no, he already knows a block away that the room is empty. He yeah. hears it. He feels it. And I thought that was a, I never thought about that, that on shows that, you know, as usual, had the pretty consistent cast throughout, um, the actors yes. carry a lot of that narrative thread yeah. because writers may come and go, even producers may come and go, script editors may come and go, but they remember what they've done before. But when you have a new cast, new companions, new doctor, you have none of that right. continuity I, long-term. I think you're making a good point, though, Allison, about sort of the disorientation that maybe these doctors feel when they're like going from like time period to time period, identity to identity, form to form. Yeah. Now, what do I know how to do? What do I, I mean, know how to could, recognize? You could, almost, you could almost look at it as a choice. It may, be, may not be a choice. But if you're looking at it sort of holistically from, you know, a canonistic perspective, it can be a choice. And I hate to, like, cheapen this conversation. That's what the novice is here for, I think. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like when I think about a show that I am the opposite of a novice of, I'm quite an expert on, is Seinfeld. You know, I mean, there's one of the biggest inconsistencies in Kramer's character happens in, like, the second season, like, the eighth season. One is that, like, he says, like, hey, Kramer, how long does it usually take showers? And he goes, I take baths. And then there's a scene of him taking a bath. And then, like, three or four seasons later... When he's preparing the meal in the shower. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Kramer is, like, suddenly, like, anti-bath in, like, the most, the (laughs) harshest, most passionate way possible. Because he didn't have a shower. He goes, I just had to take a bath, Jerry. A bath. Yeah, yeah. I had to sit there in the chemicals and all my, yeah, stewing in my own dirt and mess and whatnot. Uh... And it was it could not be more opposite choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then I look at it, but then I look at it from this perspective. It's Kramer. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kramer is not a stable character it's mentally. Not, you know, know what I mean? Oh, you know, that this could 
could yeah. be saying a lot about his character. He's hot and cold. He's he goes from one extreme to the next, and maybe this is some of maybe this inconsistency that you found, Tony, and the Doctor is yeah. saying something. Like yeah, that. I think yeah. there's a good in-universe ex- explanation for it, and there's obviously um, a real-world explanation for it. I think yeah. we as fans usually create that because we're trying to synthesize behavior into actual human behavior of people we've encountered. Mm-hmm. So whereas we have, we are describing there as an inconsistency, and I only take baths, and oh, the bath, how repulsive I had to take a bath. <laughs> Almost certainly just, you know, a continuity error, if you will, the characterization, or inconsistency in the characterization between seasons, but in our minds we try to synthesize that into personality. If we knew a person who right. did that, we wouldn't think the person was inconsistently written. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so we come up with the wrong. idea of, oh, Kramer, he's so vacillating, he's so wacky, his passion's so shifting about the correct manner to bathe, that he yeah. has these opposite, you know, extreme views a few years apart, and the writer of the latter story just says, yeah, that's what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, I was, I was showing you how vacillating... Yeah. <laughs> Kramer's bathing passions yeah. are. Yeah. We have the same thing here, yeah. where we are sure. we are desperate to carpet over the whole yeah. floor. Retroactive continuity. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of well. The whole book, in a sense, is Robinson trying to retcon for things that Orm just said. Ah, eh, yeah. who needs them? Yeah. Who needs explanations? This is some stupid sci-fi thing. And yeah. the idea of that intrigues me of more mid-century uh, mindset of disposable media. Mm-hmm that people aren't going to be watching these episodes again after the first time they air or if they air two times then. Uh, you know, the, the pop music is all... You know, people didn't expect, you know, the Beatles to be a thing 50 years later, that people were still listening to music of the 50s and 60s. In the 50s and 60s, people aren't listening to big band music of their parents' era. They're not listening to the 1920s super creepy pop music. Um, not They're not reading Golden Age comics in the 60s anymore. They're reading the new stuff. This idea that all of these serials will be compiled and preserved long-term and consumed in such a way that you can compare episodes, can compare issues of periodicals, um, can look at inconsistencies, I, I think was not, not yet being done except in the case of novels that were published in serialized form as magazines. Those were expected to be compiled. But the rest of this, eh, why try so hard? I mean, people aren't going to really be able to look back two seasons in the past or later two seasons from now and see this inconsistently. And yet Doctor Who will do that a lot, as we'll see. In the next story, we get the Cybermen again, though they look nothing like they did before, and we're expected to know from yeah. eight weeks before, oh, that's the same yeah. Cybermen we saw. Well, because they're building our modern concept of mm-hmm. long-term continuity. Exactly. All right, any last thoughts before we go on to Goodreads? I had, there was, I thought, a really nice passage here in terms of physical menace where they are descending into the shaft... Um, and the Shaft song is playing, and mm-hmm. they're like, "Is it the Samuel Jackson version or is it the original?" No, um, who can tell? <laughs> with your interest. Well, that I thought uh, was a nice. Um, I 
have no idea the nature of the insult. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I was just zing, but I don't even understand how. I'll let Reddit let me know. Uh, no, I thought it was a nice sense of physical menace and danger here. They're being uh, lowered in the uh, cage down to the shaft, and they have the impression they must be going down miles below sea level. Yes. Wherever it is, it must be a long way down, said Ben. We must be below sea level already, said the doctor, finding that he had to shout to make himself heard above the din of the lift mechanism and the rush of air. I wonder how far this thing goes down. Doctor, it's getting difficult to breathe, said Jamie. I don't feel very well either, said Polly. Now, don't be frightened, every, anybody, said the doctor. It's only the effect of the increased pressure. It'll pass soon. But the doctor found he was talking to himself. Polly and Jamie were out cold, knocked unconscious by the increased pressure, and Ben's eyelids were flickering shut, too. So at this point, I was totally stoked for this adventure, but that was kind of the high point of the menace, I thought. Once they actually yeah. got underground, that it was all running away, and dun 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 dun, dun. True. And, um, and even that bit isn't done And Benny Hinn or Benny Hill, whichever one is, runs around in music and doesn't slay you in the spirit, you know. But I, I, yeah, but there are, there are some good moments in there, the adventure. So I, I enjoyed it as a breezy adventure overall. And then we'd have these incredibly ugly moments, the worst of which is the slap, where it's like you had a very nice bowl of pesto tortellini. Mm. And it's not, you know, a gourmet meal, but it's really nice and satisfying, just what you wanted. Mm-hmm. And then the chef comes along and says, I forgot this one thing. And then he... Gleek some tobacco juice through his teeth oh, into your uh, bowl. And they were uh, like, you know, this was really nice, but... <laughs> so, uh, so the bits that were uh, so gross stood out to me that much more because overall I was enjoying it very much. Which and, is exactly what I was thinking about this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to come along with and the tobacco juice. And it, yeah. So not that they're the worst thing ever. Well, thank but, God for that. But they don't add. It's not, it's not edgy and interesting no. characterization. It's very tired old misogynistic mm, cliches yeah. that work against the characterization and the goodwill that have been developed up to this point. No, I agree. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I guess sort of like my issue is I wish they would take some of this figurative language to the far reaches that you have today, Allison, with some of your amazing analogies that you've had. I apologize uh, to everyone who was on, on the show and, and before the show. Your your analogy about higher education being like a <laughs> being like a gem, basically. Oh, you did mean the cigarette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, oh, no, well, that I did, was a like, positive one. That I, one I'll I, say on air. That okay. one is not original to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I but I yeah. Because I, I did think that every once in a while there was like sort of these like sort of flashes of good writing uh, right. from Nigel Robinson where it wasn't strictly just a transcript of a television show. As I sometimes feel like, and I sometimes feel like I feel like it's too these Man, books that's some Reddit harsh damning with faint praise. There yeah, are flashes of exactly. good writing, yeah. moments of adequacy. If Mr. Robinson yeah. listens to this, God, I hope he doesn't listen to this before he says something much crueler than I did. Yeah. So go for him first. Yeah, because mm-hmm. oh, yeah, well. I do. I mean, I think that sometimes to its credit, because I'm a playwright, uh, sort of by trade, and I and I actually like stories that are told mostly in dialogue and, right, right, right. and I it's like right. that it's yeah. not weighed down by a lot of like just yeah. uh, by a lot of description I think that helps yeah. very much but I think there, need, there needs to be a little middle ground as well but I also had a lot of I had a really hard time sort of picturing the world picturing the characters because like here's a new character and they just kind of do their thing <laughs> you know I didn't think you, need to, you didn't need to go full Tolkien explain you know and do yeah. all these vast descriptions of like the ear that's coming out of their ear uh, the hair that's coming out of their ears or anything uh, but I did think that I, I did think this world needed to come alive a little bit more, uh, 
and there are flashes of it, like I said. Every once in a while, he'd use this kind of like interesting figurative language, like especially these sort of like Britishisms that I think were pretty interesting. And I think that he needed to decide like who his audience was. At times, it felt like I'm trying to sort of like make this more generic so that anyone could enjoy it. And there are times when it's just so British, you know. Well, it is yeah. for British teenagers. I thought that was actually, yeah. I came from the opposite perspective that's part of the charm of the story. I mean, yeah, I mean, I didn't, but I feel like he, he needed to like kind of push it one way or the other. Yeah. That's just my yeah. opinion. Like, if it's going to go Brit, go full Brit, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that was, yeah, that was my thought in the, about, in the, about some of the, Content and the time meddler as well. If you're gonna do this, commit to it one way right. or the other. Yeah, I'm gonna share this like one of the one of the last line I wrote down that I didn't share yet. And it's, had to do with the had to do with the idea of like the the sort of device of how they introduce English to uh, the Atlanteans, and that's the fact that Zaroff had persuaded so many people to adopt English as their language mm, yeah. was further evidence of his great influence and his megalomania. Yeah. Yes. Well, the idea yeah. was a colonial language to them. Yeah, precisely. Yes. precisely. Um, well, I do want to show you a bit of this episode. Could just start where... Oh, that's very old. He's thrown, <laughs> yes. 20 minutes later... And luckily, that's the last. Uh, maybe uh, I was too hard on Nigel Robinson there. <laughs> well, he was yeah, giving yeah. it a go. Okay, so yeah. actually, I'm going to be the ornery one here and say that was much better than I expected. Really? Partly oh, because you had set my expectations so incredibly low, but <laughs> it's. Well, it was more boring than you know. I mean, I thought it was gonna be more kind of flamboyantly bad. It was just sort of like. Slow and gonna plotting and <laughs> yeah. compared to the Hartnell episodes I've seen, where to my modern television watching brain, it seems so strange when there are all these stretches with no music yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. I'm used to being told how to feel about things, and the sound is much worse yeah. in the early seasons. You often can't hear the dialogue. This seemed much more modern to yeah, me yeah. compared to... This seemed more yeah. like this is how sci-fi is going to be in the 70s, 80s, 90s. True. Um, right. Really, in ways... And there's a little more self-aware humor than the episodes I've seen. Of course, I'm the amateur because I haven't seen a lot of mm -hmm. the previous episodes. But you can tell it really is developing more. Yeah, we can. We can. There. Yeah. I mean, the underwater ballet... It's weird as hell, but they're trying something yeah. interesting. You just so. can't quite figure out what it is. And yeah. The, well, the previous sets I've seen have been so sparse. Yeah. That this was a, a different thing to have sort of a jam-packed cave motif. It's, I, I appreciate yeah. they're trying a different aesthetic. True. Yeah, try is kind of, I think, a very generous word there. Like, <laughs> I think they're they're attempting. I think try, the connotation with trying is that they're actually, they, actually want, they actually want to make it work and succeed. It's sort of like... Here, here's an idea, and we're gonna kind of do it. Yeah, it's kind of the impression I got from the right. episode. Exactly. <laughs> like the underwater ballet, yeah, they're trying. But really, all they're doing is just kind of going back and forth. There's really, yeah. there's no specific gestures. There's no specific yeah. movement. There's no, yeah, exactly. purpose in what they're doing. It's just they're kind of literally dangling there. Yeah, yeah. it works better yeah. on in on the page. Really. But it's not yeah. just one more desert set. Yeah, there is that. Speaking of which. <laughs> now we get to the desert of Goodreads. No, well, yeah, well, it's not a. It's not, oh, don't call it a desert, or they'll never let us use their name, as we always do. Let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured 
want to get to an upcoming book, simply read the book, write a review on Goodreads, and then write a comment somewhere so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here, which has happened. This is not one of those times. The average rating for this story out of five stars is 3.13. Which is slightly nice. higher than I thought it's like it would be. a C plus. Yeah, yeah, just a bit. Pretty low relative to the usual. Well, let's talk about that. Stormhawk, whom we've heard from before, gives it only three stars and only 19 words total. Yeah. Not, not the 19 words, but 19 <laughs> words yeah. total. Standard Doctor Who fair, lost civilization, insane scientist, hidden motives, nick of time rescue, hope for a better future. Hope for a better future for the show. <laughs> yeah. Glenn also gives it three stars. You're saying we must secure yeah. a future for our show. For the show, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So We're Glenn retroactive. retroactive. Yeah. yeah. Well, not this one. I mean Cannon. the. Yeah. I mean the television show, obviously. Glenn also gives it three stars, but has a bit more to say about it. For a story that has not been looked upon favorably as a television story, the book's not bad. I've read better Doctor Who stories, but this one is quite enjoyable and hits the right notes of the tone of the Second Doctor's era. Daniel Kukwa, who we've heard from before, gives it a four and a fairly glowing appraisal. Oh, wow. The complete antithesis to unambitious tripe, such as the novelization of The Celestial Toymaker. Mm. Nigel Robinson takes the schlockiest story of the Second Doctor's era and adapts it into something far more exciting, entertaining, and believable than what was broadcast on television. As a novelization, it's almost too good for its source material. Well, I'm not sure about that. And finally, Sean Collins echoes this with four stars and says, it's a fine adaptation of what's considered a not-so-great story. Yes, it's simplistic and pretty straightforward adventure tale. Yes, it follows very closely to the televised story with only a few minor deviations, neither of which change the fact that it is immensely enjoyable to read, and as always with novelizations of lost or incomplete stories, it paints a great picture of something we may never get to see in the flesh. The pasty, white, fishy flesh. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rory, out of five stars, what would you give this? Um, I would say two and a half. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's completely, you know, ri- ri- risable and, you know, mm-hmm. and worthless. I mean, there, there are times when I was amused. And sure. Like I said, it doesn't overstay its welcome at 130 pages. It moves fast. And, like, um, I think it does... Everything it succeeds at, though, I think it falls short of. Right. Yeah, at the same time, you know, sure. everything I liked, I kind of wanted more of. I'm like, oh, this was kind of a nice moment. You could have gone further with it, you know. Yeah. And and I agree, sort of, with Allison about some of the misogynistic elements is a bit distracting for sure. Yeah. And structurally, it just it doesn't work structurally. You know, it, it doesn't quite rise to that climax and have the resolution I think a story like this needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like if it wanted to be an anti-story... Exploded. Yeah, yeah. If, this, if they wanted this to be sort of an anti-narrative, they could have, once again, pushed that further, too. Yeah, yeah. true. So, like, you know, I, I was perfectly happy to read it. It took me two days. I'm a slow reader, so that's, you know, the fact that I got through it that quickly says yeah. something, so I'm going to have to talk about it with it today. <laughs> I would probably never read it again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Allison, what about you? Mm. I'm going to go with one, which is harsh even for me, but that's because I've been disappointed again by Robinson because I think he's capable of such funny, witty, entertaining things. And then he just either phones it in or, you know, 
comes in with the tobacco juice through his teeth. <laughs> so I, there, there are things he's written that I have enjoyed a lot. So I feel especially let down mm-hmm. by other elements. It's not, but once again, I, I always grade pretty harshly relative to the Goodreads norms. Yeah, so that's not, I mean, it's, it's still an integer, right? It's still a positive <laughs> integer. So that's not, you know, a horrific slam. It was just, the things, that, the things that I enjoyed about it were generically enjoyable. The things that I did not, in terms of the characterization that doesn't fit how we've seen these characters on screen or in other novels, and the uglier elements were disappointing enough that they were a distraction. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we have to, grade these on a curve to a certain extent you know i'm not reading this expecting herbert or you know or or asimov or vonnegut or anything like that i mean i do realize that the place their place they do have a place and their place is you know to be sort of these you know slight extensions of the television show like i I remember when i was a kid like they had the book club you know like you know get to order those books like i think i ordered like a Family Matters book. It was like some sort of Urkel story that they had stretched out to <laughs> right. 20 pages. And I don't think the attention of that was ever to win the Pulitzer or the Booker, you know no, what I mean? No, you know? No. And no, I don't think not. that that's his intention either. No. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that... What I always have in the back of my mind for these yeah. is Choose Your Own Adventure. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like a, yeah. as a good, solid series yes. that's not pretentious, I, but more interesting and insightful than, I than almost, it has any right to be. I look at this as sort of like a good paying job for a struggling writer, you know, mm-hmm. someone with a MFA in creative writing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, quick nudge, nudge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to get a nice, easy payout. So what you're saying is you're available for commissions. Absolutely. Yeah. I will gladly write the novelization of Rampage. Yeah. Well, now that they're starting to do them again, you may have your, uh, you may have your chance. As for me, we all know about my past with Nigel Robinson. Actually, I, I don't believe I recall <laughs> Oh, I thought, I thought I told you the story of how I wrote Is to him. Is he one on, of your creditors? No, no, no. <laughs> I wrote to him like when I was 12, offering up my services as a Doctor Who novelizer, mm. and he wrote a very nice letter oh. back. Oh. It may have been a form letter, but I'll ask him. But still, when that's I very nice. Him. It was very encouraging. But, <clears throat> so I like the man, and it's kind of given me a little bit of sorrow to realize this is the last Nigel Robinson novelization we're going to get. That being said, it's not his best. It's certainly not his best. I like the fact that he added so much to it because there's so much there now that makes sense that didn't in the original. That being said, the entire story in the original made no sense at all. So that's a bit like saying, oh, there's been a little bit of logic added to some really strange, inane ramblings. So, and that, and I have to admit, the misogyny went right over my head. And I'm going to have to ask him about that next week and see just so what he's like thinking. there are four elements in like those two or three sentences, and one or even two of them in kind of overlooked, <coughs> but my God, all four, it just can't be yes. an oversight. Yes. Mm-hmm. That being said... He did the same thing that he did with Ian and Barbara in uh, Edge of Destruction and actually gave a good introduction to Jamie, who, frankly, is underused in this story. He's the new companion, and you barely know it. So, yeah, but that's fine. Jamie will soon get his place in the sun because Ben and Polly will have the life sucked out of them as their lines are drained away. As people realize they like him a lot more. So Really? Yeah. I was I, was I would not have you, seen that coming from this. Story. I was gonna tell you that earlier oh. that what you saw here and with Ben and Polly weakening as characters, mm. it, it gets worse. Mm. 
So, what do I get? Three out of five. Which for me is pretty low. Not the lowest I could have given it, but still. Yeah, I'm still lowing. Well, thank you guys. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time, especially this time. Next time, we'll be discussing yet another Jerry Davis joint. The confusingly titled... The Cyberman. We will spark up yet another Jerry Davis choice. Yes. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club. <laughs> Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, all one word with no spaces. You can also visit our nearly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dw target bc. Someone on there needs to be going on about our SJWs. I mean, really. Also, feel free to watch videos. I, I include myself in that number, mm-hmm. by the way. Oh, also, yeah. feel free to watch videos <laughs> of our first 12 episodes and give us a thumbs up or comment on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperor forward slash videos. If you want to hear our live reactions to that episode of The Underwater Menace, go to patreon.com and become a Patreon as it will be one of our special Patreon extras. Also, follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcaster of your choice. If all else fails you, email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Live long and prosper. <laughs> Wrong! Phantom! <laughs> hey, I'm an artist. <laughs> 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 Get out. <laughs> <laughs>